Hello, and welcome to the podcast for the journal Integrated Environmental Assessment and Management, better known as IEAM. I'm Jenny Shaw. The January 2014 issue of IEAM contains a critical review that offers a solution to a problem common to all wildlife risk assessments, and that is how to work with dose response data that are sparse, meaning data that are spread out over different species and endpoints. Today, we're joined by Ryan Hill, who's the lead author on the paper. Ryan is an applied ecologist with the Azimuth Consulting Group in Vancouver, British Columbia. Hi, Ryan. Thanks for chatting with us today. Hi, Jenny, and thank you for having me. You've identified an important concern for all of our listeners who conduct risk assessments, and that's the lack of adequate data on which to base decisions for wildlife species. What compelled you to take on this daunting task? Well, that's a great question. The key really is that risk assessment isn't conducted in a vacuum. Risk assessment is used to support decision-making. We really want to make the best decisions possible regarding management of contaminated sites. And in practical terms, that means that ideally, we should allocate our money and effort to address contamination in cases where there truly are unacceptable impacts. And at the same time, we shouldn't be allocating money and effort to address contamination that doesn't cause unacceptable impacts. A key challenge to good decision-making is scientific uncertainty. Risk assessment requires many types of information, and most of that information is really uncertain. And lately, there has been an increased recognition that uncertainty in the effects component of risk assessment is as important or even more important than uncertainty in exposure. Yet, you know, almost all practitioners continue to use point estimate toxicity reference values for the effects component of risk assessment without really understanding what these uncertainties mean and their implications. To account for uncertainty, the most common approach has been to use conservative assumptions when deriving point estimate toxicity reference values. And certainly there is a role for conservatism during an initial screening level risk assessment because we want to efficiently and confidently narrow the focus of a risk assessment to the issues that matter most. But for more detailed assessments where we are striving for more accuracy, these conservative assumptions will tend to result in risk estimates that are biased and not really that useful. Most importantly, in our view, for large and complex sites where we have to make difficult decisions that include trade-offs among risks, costs of remediation, impacts of remediation, and other factors, we should not be reducing this highly uncertain information to single-point estimates, and certainly not to biased point estimates. For these large and complex sites, where there may be millions of taxpayer dollars at stake, we should provide risk estimates that are as accurate as possible. And we should also characterize and convey uncertainties so that decision makers can make the most informed decisions possible. So in a nutshell, we're hoping that risk assessors will move beyond point estimate toxicity reference values when warranted. And hopefully the suggestions we've made in the paper will provide some tools that others can use for this purpose. Great. And and now I'm just wondering, do you feel like mm-hmm. your paper describes an issue that it's more about fighting a long-standing paradigm in the field, or do people know what they should be doing? There's just lack of data. I think there's a bit of both. I think that many practitioners who have been in the field for a long time really understand the problem. The difficulty is knowing what to do about it because it really is a daunting task. I think for some other practitioners maybe that haven't been involved in risk assessment for long periods of time, They may not realize how much uncertainty there is in these point estimate toxicity reference values, uh, but most of the people that we interact with are fully aware of this problem. Thanks, Ryan.
In the paper, you and your colleagues detail 15 important aspects to consider when compiling dose-response data across studies. Can you give us the two or three factors that you think are most crucial and how those might affect the risk assessment process? Okay, I think I'll start with point number four in the paper, which relates to statistical significance. So statistical significance is an artifact of the general paradigm of hypothesis testing. And hypothesis testing can be very useful from a research perspective, but we really need to question to what extent it is appropriate in an applied setting such as risk assessment. As an example, if we have a bird study showing a 15% reduction in egg production associated with mercury exposure, but the p-value from that statistical test is 0.06, which is just above the 0.05 commonly used benchmark, do I really believe that the null hypothesis of zero effect is more likely to be true than the alternate hypothesis of a 15% effect? Probably not. If I were depending on that single study for drawing conclusions about effects of mercury on bird reproduction, the degree of confidence that I have in that study is certainly relevant, but the statistical significance of particular treatment groups in particular studies is much less important if I'm considering numerous data points derived from several studies. Another point we discussed in the paper, it comes up under points 5 and 8, relates to the use of oral dose as the measure of exposure in wildlife risk assessment. I'd like to talk about that issue as well. This is an area where we think there is a lot of room for improvement. Most studies report exposure as the concentration of a contaminant in diet items, and there is a lot of uncertainty in converting this to an oral dose. We could use diet concentration directly as the measure of exposure. Certainly, body weight is not a perfect surrogate for variables such as metabolic rate and organ volume and mass, uh, which affect an organism's exposure and response to a contaminant. So while there is uncertainty associated with converting a dietary concentration to a body weight normalized dose, so too there is uncertainty in not accounting for or controlling for these intra and interspecies differences in those variables I just mentioned. In our view, if we have data for a species that is the receptor of interest in a risk assessment, then diet concentration is absolutely preferred over oral dose as the measure of exposure. But this is a rare case. When we have to extrapolate data from one species to another, the pros and cons of diet concentration versus oral dose have to be carefully considered. An alternative we don't discuss in the paper is the use of tissue residues as a measure of exposure. There has been a lot of work in this area too, for example, using measured concentrations of contaminants in bird eggs as the measure of exposure for assessing effects on bird reproductive endpoints. Tissue residues should, in theory, be much better as a measure of exposure because they're more closely linked to the biologically effective dose. However, data may be more limited in some cases, and it may not always be practical to sample the tissues directly, particularly for species that are, that are designated as protected. Uh, anyway, this is an area where a lot of work is needed. So then, do you have tips for researchers about how they might improve the quality of their data to facilitate its use in risk assessment? That's a good question. There are many ways in which research studies could be improved. There are three that I would highlight. First, as a data user, I'd really like to see larger numbers of treatment groups whenever possible. I'm not only interested in knowing whether there is an effect of a contaminant on a receptor at a certain dose. What I really want to know is what is the relationship between exposure to the contaminant and effects, and that requires multiple treatment groups. I would also encourage researchers to more accurately measure dose by recording feeding rates and body weight throughout experiments. That way, if we do decide to use oral dose instead of diet concentration as the measure of exposure, we'll have accurate information. Another point, I think studies should always strive to relate measured effects to endpoints that are important from a population perspective. 
the ability of organisms to survive and reproduce is really the key concern in most risk assessments. So what is your vision for the path forward for improving the quality and defensibility of wildlife risk assessments? You know, for screening level risk assessments, I think there is a lot of work to be done on improving the TRVs that are commonly used to generate hazard quotients. And many authors have made this point lately, including in your journal. Uh, and I think that improvements will be made in this area. However, what I'm more concerned about is how to make detailed risk assessments more defensible. Detailed risk assessments are generally warranted at sites where there are real problems and we need to make trade-offs between risks and costs and other factors. For these detailed ERAs, I think there are three key improvements we need to strive for and they are all related. First, detailed risk assessments need to actually estimate risks rather than rely on quotient methods. For any wildlife receptor, we should try to measure or predict decreases in reproduction or survival and we should relate those decreases to implications on population abundance. Second, uncertainties about risks need to be characterized and conveyed in a way that is useful for decision-making. In the simplest case, this could mean giving a range of risk estimates that include not only a conservative estimate of risks, but also a best estimate. For detailed risk assessments, we should always give our best estimates and avoid giving only conservative estimates. Ideally, risk estimates should be probabilistic. For example, if my best guess was that there was a 15% decline in abundance for a local population, ideally, I would also provide a cumulative probability distribution for the decline in abundance. This type of information can be easily translated into metrics that are useful for decision makers. For example, how confident am I that the decline in abundance would be less than 25%? And given the size of the local population, how many individual organisms does this mean we should expect to lose? The third improvement we could make in risk assessment is to promote rational decision-making with our clients and particularly with regulators. This is perhaps more easily achieved with public sites for which taxpayer money is used for risk management. In those cases, regulators should be urged to weigh risks against the impacts and costs of remediation and any other factors that are relevant. I guess the theme of my vision for wildlife risk assessment is that we should be able to assess risks in a way that allows for rational decision-making while accounting for uncertainties. As risk assessors, we can learn a lot from other fields in this area. A great example is fishery stock assessment and management. For decades, fishery scientists and managers have tried to figure out maximum allowable harvests for fish populations, and keep in mind that fish population abundance is extremely variable and uncertain. Thank you, Ryan. Well, thanks very much for the opportunity. You've been listening to Ryan Hill discuss how to make the best of sparse dose response data when conducting wildlife risk assessments. Access the critical review by Ryan and his co-authors in the January 2000 issue of IEAM. Just go to ctacjournals.org. I'm Jenny Shaw, and thank you for listening to the IEAM podcast.